I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we're looking at two verses this afternoon, verses 49 and 50. I realize I seem to be taking on, taking on less and less each week, and <laughs> uh, Luke happens to have a lot of different transitions um, in each chapter. I think they're they're along the the lines of the of the same theme, and so it's it's possible to take them in a single sermon here and to consider maybe the identity of Christ as we've heard that a lot of times throughout these this chapter, or even considering the um, humility the need for humility among the disciples. Uh, we'll see that theme again um, this afternoon, but. Um, but I, I just have a hard time when, when there's a clear break in the passage from one section to another, um, as, as we find here. So we're just looking at those two verses, and as a reminder, Luke is writing his gospel to assure Christian readers uh, that the things that they've heard about the life and ministry of Christ are true. Right? It's meant to assure them in their faith provide an orderly account of Jesus's life. And this is the final conversation of Jesus's Galilean ministry. He began that conversation in the previous passage where he's discussing with the disciples about their argument over who's the greatest. And his response to them has already begun there. But he, again, this is sort of part two of that same conversation. And it's a transition because John uh, provides a response of his own that is in the form of a, a statement. I guess he's, he's asking for some kind of affirmation from Jesus in verse 49. So we'll, we'll look at that um, this afternoon. But they were arguing about which of them would be the greatest in heaven, and Jesus ended up bringing a child to his side, giving them an example of humility and essentially quieting their pride. And instead of taking up their cross to follow Jesus, they were more concerned with securing positions of honor. And so they're, they're humbled. Now, we might consider this part two of that Jesus' response to pride. Uh, although our, our culture has made an idol out of toleration, by it's kind of merged its meaning with approval, uh, the original concept, I think, is commended here by Jesus. We can eliminate many of our enemies by learning to tolerate those who are not opposed to us. This isn't about, you know, becoming hitmen and learning how to do a better job of eliminating our enemies. This is about eliminating those by recognizing that they're really not enemies. They're, they're not against us, and therefore they're for us. We, we might have a lot fewer enemies if we stopped creating them out of allies. So it begins in, well, before we, we read, let's, um, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this brief reminder once again uh, that we can come humbly before you and we can recognize the unity that we have with Christ that gives us unity with others who may not be like us in every way. Oftentimes you bring people who are quite different from one another together, and it strengthens us to be able to interact with them and to show kindness and love. 
And so take away the spirit of competitiveness that we might have or, or the fear of being misunderstood or of being judged and, and take and fill us with a desire for community and genuine fellowship that, that looks like a picture of heaven and the unity it will experience there for all eternity. Lord, help us to have a taste of that even now as we read your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear this truth. And help us to have hearts that have been softened by your spirit to respond appropriately. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Let's read with me Luke chapter 9, verses 49 and 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Amen. This is God's holy word. Pretty simple. Um, there's, we're just going to look at verse 49 as a competitive question, and then verse 50 as a unifying answer. So in the, in the next passage, John, along with his brother James, is going to seek to call fire down from heaven to consume the Samaritans who were unwilling to receive Jesus. They'd gone to Samaria, or they were willing, Jesus was willing to go to Samaria, but they were unwilling to receive him. And so John is, is anxious. He's, he and James are ready to call down fire from heaven. And no one can deny John's youthful passion. He was all heat, but he frequently lacked compassion. And, and we see this here in his speaking up about this rogue exorcist, right? This person that they saw exercising demons that was not among their group, right? They, the, the need for love that we find in John's epistles those were later on in life as he was maturing, as he was recognizing the need for love to be the motivator and the guide to our actions. That would become the theme later in life. When he was young, he was, all about, he was very passionate for maintaining the purity of the church, standing up for the truth. But he was oftentimes misunderstood about how to do that. So John is responding to what Jesus has just told them about the child. Right, the one who is the least is the greatest. And then they're thinking, well, at least uh, maybe you could commend us for, for wanting to, do so, you know, to, to, to stop this guy who's exercising demons. So after hearing the rebuke from the previous passage, it does seem like John is seeking some sort of affirmation here from Jesus, that he might agree that they did the right thing, but once again, he's mistaken. So the circumstance was that they saw someone casting out demons in the name of Jesus. They saw someone probably when they were up on the mountain praying, on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, and as they had come back down to the crowd, after this, hearing this rebuke, John is reminded of their own attempt at rebuking someone, their own attempt at stopping uh, this exorcist from, or this, this freelance, as I keep calling him a, an exorcist because Kent Hughes calls him a successful freelance exorcist. I think that's a, a good way of saying it. He, he does seem to be successful. This isn't just a guy using the name of Jesus, trying to cast out demons and, and you know, just not doing anything really. 
it seems that, or the text seems to indicate that he was doing that. John's, John's response seems to indicate that he was actually casting those demons out. They were listening, and he was doing so in the name of Christ. But lacking a call and a commission, was he qualified? That's, I think, where John's question is coming from, right? And the disciples, their own discomfort. Is this man qualified to do what he's doing? Shouldn't he stop? Well, in Acts 19, the seven sons of Siva were Jewish exorcists. And they witnessed the healing power of Paul, and then they attempted to use the name of Jesus in order to cast out a demon. And as imposters, they were unsuccessful in doing it. In fact, the demon overpowers them, and it says that they all, all seven of these exorcists, fled from the house naked. They were embarrassed and ashamed by the demon. So had this particular exorcist been an imposter, it would seem that the demon certainly would have overpowered him as well. That doesn't seem to be the case here. Likewise, you have Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8 wanting to purchase the gift of the Holy Spirit after seeing the, the healing power that comes with the Spirit. And so he is condemned for that. This situation seems different from anything we see there in Acts. It would be closer to the time when Moses was warned about two men who had been prophesying in the camp. And they weren't among the 70 who had been set apart to do that work. And so Moses, these, uh, he's warned about the men doing that, and, and he's, they're ex- he's expected to sort of want to go out and, and stop them from doing it. Instead, Moses responds saying, would that everyone would have the gift, would that everyone would be able to prophesy. He would, he would desire to see the whole camp acting in this way. So this man is exercising demons in the name of Jesus, and rather than undermining their ministry, he's actually promoting it. He's supporting the work that they're doing. He's drawing more attention to it. It would seem that this man was a true disciple, even though he didn't belong to the 12, to that core group. He was outside of that. There were genuine followers of Christ. And so there was no need to go out and rebuke them for doing something that they thought only they, were, they had the authority to do. Oftentimes, Jesus works in ways that are beyond our comprehension and outside of our typical circle of trust. And I think this is maybe where we need to um, consider applying this to ourselves, right? How, how willing are we to see the work of God beyond our denomination, beyond our church in this city? How willing are we to partner with other ministries, with other churches, to see a work that is beyond our own capabilities, right? that would expand our resources. I think these are questions that this passage naturally brings to the surface. So why did he try to stop him? Well, maybe they were a bit jealous of his success. Remember in previous, in, in 940, they had been unsuccessful in casting out the demon from the young man. I said, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Maybe this was around the same time. They had just been unsuccessful. They see this this guy who looks like an imposter doing it, and he's successful. What's going on here? The disciples obviously ended up creating a problem where one didn't exist. And unfortunately, this is all too common among believers who are zealous for the truth 
and the purity in the church, right? We need sympathy. We need patience and wisdom to temper our zeal. Wilcock, Michael Wilcock says this, he, his comments on this passage, to adapt Reinhold uh, Niebuhr's famous prayer, they must ask for the serenity to accept what does not need to be challenged, the courage to challenge what does, and the wisdom to know the difference. And the prayer is talking about change, but in, in this case, he's adapting it to this context, saying we do need to have that ability to, to accept what doesn't need to be challenged. Not try to confront anything and everything we find a problem with. The courage to challenge what clearly does need to be challenged and the wisdom to know the difference. I think that's a wise counsel. So they wanted to prevent him from casting out demons in the name of Jesus. That's, that's what they were wanting to do. They wanted to stop him from casting out demons because he doesn't follow with us. John assumes this man is an imposter, but he clearly just didn't understand um, the full facts. They thought he was just doing, a similar, doing similar things to them, really in opposition to them. Um, and so it's not hard to imagine that competitive spirit welling up in terms of serving Jesus. They just talked about who would be the greatest, recognizing their own competitive spirit among one another. So outside of their group, they're even more judgmental. Our striving to be faithful can quickly become arrogant and judgmental of others. So we need to hear this unifying answer from Jesus in verse 50. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Paul makes a a similar appeal to those who proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition with the intent of adding to his affliction. In Philippians 1, verses 17 through 18, he actually, instead of responding to their cruelty and correcting them in anger, Paul diffuses the division by commending them. The scripture is clear, right? We cannot tolerate evil. We don't tolerate wickedness or doctrinal errors or sexual sin or idolatry. Jesus isn't suggesting that love always wins and we should just let people be who they want to be and, and, and appreciate and approve of anything and everything. That's not what he's saying here, right? He isn't suggesting that, that we should uh, uh, approve the ministry of anyone and everyone regardless of their theological and moral failures, There are cases where rebuke is needed, where the truth is to be spoken in love. We'll always be surrounded by those with conflicting interests or differences in personalities, but that doesn't mean that they are enemies of the gospel. This is about people who are on the same team competing with one another. And it's always going to be a difficult thing to balance. When how can we tell and when, can we, when do we know when it's appropriate to rebuke or to admonish? When should we tolerate someone who might be operating, un, uh, operating under false motives? And there's a, uh, there are a lot of churches in the Central Valley. And some of them, I would say, are genuinely apostate uh, due to their corrupt doctrine. Many of them, I would say, are compromised in their practice. So should we try to stop them? Should we be like, 
should it be our goal to shut these churches down, to draw everyone out of those churches into our own? Uh, Billy Graham used to come to Fresno. He's been here a few times. Um, and he, uh, he used to tell the pastors here, I wasn't a pastor at the time, so I, I never met Billy Graham, but um, he told them that this city, this community has one of the most unifying group of churches that, he, that he's seen in the nation. There's a camaraderie and a lack of competitiveness among the churches. And I think it's important that we can appreciate our own distinctives. We can appreciate who we are as Presbyterians in the Presbyterian Church in America and all of the distinctions that that implies without attacking our allies. Daryl Bach says, ministry should not be limited to one group, one denomination, or one theological tradition. All who serve the Lord faithfully deserve our support. This really has been the, the consistent interpretation of this passage all throughout his church history. You have the recognition that we oftentimes make enemies out of people who really are on the same team, who are working towards furthering the kingdom of God. And so we ought to lower our view of ourselves if we think that we are the only ones qualified to represent God. If that is the case, we're far too important in our own eyes. Those we initially think of as enemies often do turn out to be allies. And so when we evaluate others, we should be charitable and gracious. Jesus will give an answer regarding how we should evaluate ourselves later on. And he's looking at Luke 11, uh, 23. Jesus will say, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Sort of when you put the, the two passages together, it's like he's talking about how we view others. They're not against us, they're for us, and how we view ourselves. If we're not with Christ, then we're against him. We're opposed to him. Either way, the point is this. We are either for Christ or against him. There's no neutrality when it comes to uh, our understanding of who Christ is. Our enemies, they do exist. Right? And, and, and we will have enemies throughout life, but we don't need to go searching for them or creating them out of ones who don't intend to be, right? who don't intend to work against us. So let us take that to heart and continue to worship God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder. We thank you for the, the reminder that we do have many churches in the city. We do have many different kinds of churches with different values and different distinctives. And, and maybe we're prone to want to highlight those distinctives more than we should. We want to talk about how important our church is over these other churches. And yet, the vast majority of our city is, is not in any of these churches. They're not attending anywhere. And they're lost and, and they're without a shepherd. Lord, give us a heart for them. Give us a compassion for the lost. It's a, des a desire to even work alongside other churches, to, to recognize we do have allies, and to stop treating them as enemies. So give us the discernment needed to see with the eyes of Christ in this case. It's in his name we pray. Amen.